Welcome to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Diane Rehm hosted her radio program, The Diane Rehm Show, for 37 years. Now, much of her work is focused on advocating for understanding and acceptance of physician aid in dying. Diane's newest book and accompanying documentary, When My Time Comes, takes on this difficult topic. She appeared at a virtual Writer Series event and spoke with Cynthia Canty, former host of Michigan Radio's Stateside. Cynthia asked Diane to talk about how she's been doing during the pandemic. You know, I've had quite a remarkable year. I have gone from one podcast to two podcasts. I've added a monthly book club. I've been working for the past three years on the documentary about which we're going to talk and the book that came as a result of that documentary. So Zoom has been a phenomenal addition to all our lives. And I feel very grateful that in this time of COVID, we're able to continue to communicate. So since you uh, retired from NPR and the Giant uh, Show, you have not retired. You're just busier than ever. Retired. Not and, retired. And, and you have, you've gotten married. And I got married. I got married in 2017 in October to a man I had met 30 years earlier. We were both married. I mean, we said about two words to each other. But after my book On My Own came out, Mm -hmm. he wrote to me. He is a retired uh, pastor in the Lutheran Church. He wrote to me and commended me for the book and said, you know, he'd love to see me. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I'll be down in your area. And darned if he didn't drive three and a half hours to get there. And that's how we met. And I understand your husband, John, gave you a very special four-legged furry wedding gift. Can we meet Bella? Where's Bella? Here is your Bella. Bella. Right here. <laughs> Bella is the dearest creature I've Aww. ever known in my life. She is almost three years old now. She is a Havanese poodle, and she is so sweet and so smart and so loving. So... You've got some good company there. You've got some I really good do. company. Well, I, I know really everybody do. was happy to to get caught up with you and and also to meet little Bella. And Thank now we're going to we're going to turn to this stunning book. My, when my time comes, conversations about whether those who are dying should have the right to determine when life should end. And it is a companion to a film that will soon be airing on PBS, exploring medical aid in dying. So, Diane, what is that, and who is it for? Medical aid in dying was first introduced in the state of Oregon about 24 years ago. And it is for those who are within six months of death 
that must be determined by two physicians. Um, the individual must ask for medical aid in dying. And once a very long process of interviews has begun and ended, and in some states, a psychiatrist interview is required in order to ensure that the individual is in no way being coerced by friends or family or anyone who might indeed benefit by this person's death. What it allows is for that person to die peacefully. The individual must be able to self-administer a liquid concoction that is put together only by um, certain pharmacists around the country. It's in no way easy to get, nor is it in any way easy to find a physician who will agree with you to conduct medical aid in dying. The physician is not there at that moment, but that medication is with you to take or not take. And, you know, let me say right off the bat, not everyone wants this. Mm -hmm. Not everyone agrees with this. Not everyone believes that anyone other than God should be the decider mm -hmm. who takes a life. The one who and, says when. And not everyone wants anything other than what every element of medical science can provide. But there are those of us, and our number is growing, who really would like to go in peace with our dignity intact, with our sense of our own person intact, and to make that decision on our own. And that's what medical aid in dying is all about. And this book and is a collection of conversations you had with a wide range of people about the right to die movement and medical aid in dying. And it's, it is an amazing collection, physicians and ethicists and members of the clergy and patients who do have a terminal illness and surviving family members. And you really did a good job of getting views on both sides. As you say, not everybody's on board with this. Absolutely. Um, and the book came out of a documentary film that was directed by Joe Fab and executive produced by Diane Naughton that will soon air on PBS. So let's watch the opening of this film and then we'll talk about it on the other side. Thank you.
is death. How will my own life end? What options do I have, if any, as to what my death will be like? Artists, philosophers, writers, people like you and me have been considering questions like these for, well, for as long as there have been human beings. Today, some of us are willing to speak openly about such things, but many of us are not. We live in a, in a culture that seems to hide from mortality. This is the most difficult experience for a patient and their families. Speaking about death and dying is complicated for people, and it takes a certain amount of willingness to be vulnerable. These conversations are not actually about dying. They're about the quality of our lives. Everybody's ideal is to die quickly in their sleep and not have any existential suffering, but that's not available to many of us. 25% of people who die with chronic illness die with uncontrolled pain. I'm going to die of breast cancer, right? One of the scariest things about that is, is that you have no control. But you can control the how I die. Life. I can control how I die. Medical aid in dying is a medical treatment that enables a person who is dying, who has exhausted all hope for cure and is close to an imminent death, help them die in comfort, in peace and with reduced level of suffering. When somebody is thinking about aid in dying, they're not thinking about it casually. I think this is a very difficult debate for a lot of people. Some people don't feel it's an appropriate thing for a doctor to do. I don't know whether I would use it, but I know I'd like to have the choice. This is between an individual and her family and doctor. A good conversation right. goes a long way. But this is a hard one. Most people would rather not talk about death. They'd rather push it out of their minds. But I believe we must talk about it. For me, thinking about what I would like to have at the end of my life is very important. And sharing my wishes with my family, my friends, my physician, I believe will bring comfort to us all when my time comes. And that was the opening to the documentary, When My Time Comes, that will be airing soon on PBS stations. We'll tell you more about that. And Diane was so taken, I think, with every all the work she was doing and the people she talked with, she realized there needed to be a book. Uh, and it's a wonderful mix because I've had a chance to watch the documentary. I've read the book. And they each fit. When I, when I read the book and then watched the documentary, I said, oh, look, there's, there's so-and-so that I read about. And the wonderful thing about the book is you get 
the longer version, the unedited version, if you will, of, of uh, the interviews that you saw in the documentary. So Diane, they fit together beautifully. What was your goal in undertaking the film and this book? My goal, and I think Joe's and Diane's goal are all the same, and that is to encourage people to talk about death. Death is the last taboo. Death is something nobody wants to talk about, and everybody pretends is never going to happen. It's as though we're young children and we think, oh, never going to happen to me. And, you know, I spoke at a church as we were on tour, and I said to the congregation, please raise your hand if you plan not to die. And, of course, there was this uncomfortable titter within the congregation. And as there always has been, when people ask about death, it's as though, oh, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about something more pleasant. Well, the fact of the matter is we are all going to die no one is going to get out of here free. So let us talk about it. Let us plan for it. Let us think about what we want. And let us hear about what those we love would like to have. So we are talking about the, the, the right to die issue. We're talking about medical assistance in dying. Certainly we in Michigan became acutely aware of the right to die issue in the 1990s because of the late Dr. Jack Kevorkian uh, lived uh, actually minutes from where I am right now. He lived in a Detroit suburb, made international headlines. Dr. Death is known around the world. He claimed to have helped about 130 patients die and he was eventually convicted of second degree murder. And Dr. Jack served eight years of a 10 to 25 year prison sentence. And then he died in 2011. Diane, how do right to die advocates view Dr. Kevorkian today in 2021? I think uh, Jack Kevorkian began the discussion. I think, unfortunately, he did it in a way that perhaps offended many people in how he went about it. But he did expose the fact that so many people who are near death would like to go peacefully and would like to fall no further into indignity. They were begging him to die. Mm -hmm. And I think actually Dr. Kevorkian started the discussion Many people were angry and offended and even outraged, but nevertheless, he got the discussion going. And then I, I think it's it's clear from, from the film and your book that Brittany Maynard really refocused everyone's attention on, on that dilemma of knowing that a very bad death awaits 
and what you have to do about that. And you actually spoke with her, with her husband for your book in the that poor young woman at such an early age remind everybody what happened with Brittany. she was married at age 29 she and her husband so happily married and so beautiful a young couple and shortly after they were married she began having terrible headaches she was at first told that she had a small brain tumor and it was removed after they told her that she had something like six years to live. And at 29, as she said, being told you only have six years to live is just ghastly. Well, the headaches continued another X-ray showed that the tumor had expanded and she had only six months to live. So indeed, she and her husband picked up stakes, moved from California, which at the time had no law governing medical aid in dying, moved to Oregon, the first state in the country to enact medical aid in dying in 1994. Now, how many of us, how many of us could do that? Mm -hmm. They moved their whole household and she registered for medical aid in dying. She found a doctor at Oregon who would assist her her mother moved with her. I mean, her husband had to go back and forth between Oregon and California to continue his work. They rented a house. But finally, finally, she died in peace. Such a beautiful young woman utilizing medical aid in dying in the state of Oregon. And that term medical aid in dying is very key because another term that is sometimes used, quite often used is assisted suicide. Uh, and the people who are the advocates are adamant this is not assisted suicide. The opponent you spoke to made a point of using the term assisted suicide. So explain that for us. When one decides to commit suicide, one has a choice to live or to die. When one takes one's own life, it is a choice to end one's life. I talked with a wonderful 37-year-old mother, and she said to me, she had breast cancer that had spread throughout her body. She had been told she had only six months left to live. She said, if I had my druthers, I would live until I was 90. She said, I don't. I have a 13-year-old son. I do not want that son 
to see me suffer in the way I saw my own mother suffer and die. I do not want that for my son. So she said, as soon as I heard there might even be a possibility of a law governing medical aid in dying in California where she lived, she said, I told my doctor, I want to sign up right away. And the doctor said, but it's not even law yet. She said, never mind. I want to be on record as being one of the candidates for medical aid in dying should my time come. And, you know, it's so interesting because when her time did come, like one-third of the individuals who received the medication who have been deemed within six months of death, she chose not to take it. Instead, she died peacefully in a hospice. She did not suffer, and her wish that her son not see her suffer was granted. One of the other uh, women, one of the patients you spoke with um, for the film and the book, made a real good point that that stuck with me that she said having that option, knowing that the prescription had been written, made her more game for the treatments for her pancreatic cancer than she might have been otherwise. Absolutely. That jumped out at me. Isn't that extraordinary? She said that gave me the courage to move forward knowing that my life was in my own control, knowing I live in a state where medical aid in dying is allowed. I have a sympathetic doctor who will work with me, and therefore I will move forward. I think there is um, a fairly comfortable and widespread view that if I'm terminally ill and I'm under hospice care, my pain's going to be controlled um, and I can have that peaceful death that, that we want. As you talk to people and heard their stories, what kind of limits to palliative and hospice care did you uncover as people share their stories? From doctors themselves, Mm -hmm. I heard there are some types of pain that simply cannot be controlled and patients do suffer so that The idea of having the choice at the end to say, my suffering has gone as far as I can take it. I cannot go further. To have that choice and to have a sympathetic doctor who says, I understand and You are within six months of death, Mm -hmm. so we will provide you the medication, which you can then decide to take or not take. It's up to you. More than one person that you spoke with, Diane, in this book worries about 
you can tell they're clear about it or you can hear the subtext. They're worried about right-to-die laws kicking open the door to involuntary euthanasia. Some, one person asked, what if an insurance company finds itself in a position of making life and death decisions based on the bottom line, or maybe family members wind up making a life or death decision? So are these right-to-die laws constructed with firewalls and safeguards? Absolutely. And in all the years since Oregon's the first law to be enacted in 1994. In all those years, there has not been a single case where someone has been coerced, where someone has said, I have no insurance to pay for my care, where someone has said, my child is pushing me or my spouse wants me out of here. Not a single case of malfeasance. And therefore, here is what I say to you. If you believe and want God to be the only decider, that must be your choice and should be your choice, and I support you 100%. If you decide you want absolutely everything that medical science can provide, and you are willing to tolerate that and want that, I support you 100%. And for those of us who say, at some point, we will want medical aid in dying. I hope you will support us as well. This is Cynthia Canty, and I am happy to be the host of this very special event with Diane Rame as we talk about her book, When My Time Comes, book and upcoming film on PBS. And a special welcome. This is a National Writer Series event and also a special presentation of Interlock and Public Radio. So we welcome those of you listening to us on IPR. And as promised, it is 7.30 right on the nose. And I promised I would open up the chat function earlier than usual for your questions. So we're going to open that now and you can start typing questions in. I'll see them and I'll try to get to as many as I can in the time we have with Diane. So Diane, right now we have um, what nine states plus the District of Columbia where someone terminally ill can choose to have medical aid in dying. We have eight states in DC that enacted laws and Montana's was through a state Supreme Court decision. And this week an end of life bill cleared the New Mexico State House. So that is working its way through the process. Now here in Michigan, there have been some attempts to get death with dignity legislation passed, but none of them succeeded. In fact, I'm checked back to 1998. I remember covering the story, a ballot proposal modeled after Oregon's Death with Dignity Act. It was rejected by over 70, 73%, 71% of Michigan voters. It was a pretty resounding rejection. What are the biggest misconceptions about death with dignity laws? That an individual can be forced into medical aid in dying. That is not only the biggest misconception, it is the biggest fear. 
that somehow an insurance company will force you to take medical aid in dying. Remember, mm -hmm. it's up to you. It is your choice. And it is your choice in consultation with your family, with your doctor, but most of all, your own decision. We have a question from Kathy, and she wondered, how does your husband, who is in the clergy, feel about this and about the work and the advocacy you're doing? He totally supports me, as did John Ream before he died. We had talked about medical aid in dying. We had talked about helping each other die long before he died of Parkinson's disease. And indeed, when he went into the nursing home for the last year and a half of his life, you know, the doctor even said to me, Diane, you are a known figure. Do not do anything that would help your husband die. He cautioned me about that, even though John and I truly knew we would support each other, but never do anything to actively bring about the other's death. But I, when he said, I'm ready to die, I have lost a sense of dignity. And if I continue to live this way, I know I will go further into indignity and I'm not willing to go there. We have a question from a name you'll know, Joe Fab, who is the director of this wonderful documentary Hi, that we will. There's Joe's watching. And it's a good question, and I wanted to get to this. So, Diane, when you talk about suffering at the end of life, who determines that? Is it the doctor? Is it the patient? And, and also, what constitutes suffering? I mean, must it be pain? It must be the patient who determines that. It cannot be the doctor. It cannot be I, Diane, who determines how much you are suffering. It must be the patient who conveys to the doctor what that patient is feeling. No one else can make that judgment. So here is a very good question from L. Pugh that really goes right to the heart of what so many families are facing, and that is those who are deteriorating mentally, Alzheimer's and dementia. Can they choose before they reach that level of incompetence? You know, I have to confess that I have created a film, as you saw, mm -hmm. watching the film, with my grandson holding the camera, holding his iPhone and filming me while our videographer was filming him. And I said to him, if I reach a point 
where I am losing my ability to think clearly, to communicate clearly, to be of use in this society. I want you to know I'm not going to stay. I am not going to stay. And not on on the film, but he said to me, well, Dee Dee, which is what he calls me, he said, well, what am I supposed to do? And I said, I don't know, sweetheart, but by then we'll figure it out. Let me tell you that right now, having Alzheimer's or dementia is not covered in any of these laws. It is not included. It is only physical illness that is determining whether you may have medical aid in dying. And I have heard over and over and over this same question because Alzheimer's and dementia have become such a huge mm -hmm. part of society's suffering, and it's getting worse. So it sounds like I hear you saying these laws don't really cover people who have Alzheimer's. I'm seeing questions no. flying in, people who, are, who look at what that could mean, and they're terrified. Exactly. It exactly. doesn't. So I do share that terror. Mm. And you may have read, as I did, an article in the New York Times magazine several years ago where a wife and a husband had agreed because the wife was suffering the early stages of dementia, of Alzheimer's, they had agreed that when it reached a certain point, she would take her own life. Now you could say, well, suppose she doesn't know any longer. Mm -hmm. When that time comes, they calibrated it together. And she was going to take her life two months hence and her husband said to her, the time is now. They were married for 25 years. It is such an extraordinary story. Your listeners, your viewers should look that up. It is something that terrifies so many people. Carl had a question. We, we touched on it, but I'm going to run down the list. Carl was wondering how many states have medical aid in dying laws. So currently, you have eight states in Washington, D.C. We have California, Colorado, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maine, New Jersey, Oregon, which was the first, Vermont, Washington, and also Montana. Not a law, but it was a court decision. So that's where exactly. we stand right now. Exactly. Beth raises uh, a question that is addressed, and I want to talk about that. It's addressed in your book and in the film of, of equity and, and, and the fact that, as she says, this seems like an option for more affluent people. What about equitable availability for all? 
it is available for all, but as you and I both know, equitability for people of color on all levels in this country is not there. And that includes medical care. I think people of color recall vividly the Tuskegee experiments, other situations where blacks do not receive the kind of care that others do. Think of even now with the COVID virus and the fact that people of color are not receiving the vaccine in the same way, in the same amount, to the same extent that others are. Now, there's also on their part a distinct suspicion about that, with good reason. Mm -hmm. And as the Reverend Lamar of the African Methodist Episcopal Church said to me, Diane, if you can show me someday that there will be fairness and equity in the way that people of color receive medical care in this country, then I will be more likely to support you. But right now, he said, that's mm -hmm. not the case. Jane Becker asks, is, uh, and is there a legal way, can you do, for example, a living will to make our wishes known regarding medical assistance well before we're ill? And we do see you at that church talking with people, people who are at the death cafe too. You were having a great conversation, saw that in the film. And I know one lady said, oh, well, we've talked all about what we want, da, da, da. And you, you said, wait a minute, what about so what are people missing? What are some of the best ways that, that people can open the process of talking about and realizing what they want and then making sure it's done? Well, too many people think that writing it down on a piece of paper mm -hmm. is going to be enough. Unfortunately, if you wind up in a hospital that does not honor your wishes, that does not agree to stop medical care or to let you return to your own home. Mm -hmm. You're in trouble. Unfortunately, the only way you can ensure that you have what you want is to talk, talk, talk with your family, with your doctors, with your neighbors, so they know not to call 911 because the people who respond Two nine one one calls are obligated to resuscitate or 
attempt to resuscitate you. And that can be a big problem. I write in the book about a story given to me about an elderly woman who had everything written down. She even had a statement on her refrigerator saying, do not resuscitate. She had a stroke mm. and someone called 911 and she woke up in the hospital. She was absolutely furious mm. because she did not want that to happen. And that's why these death cafes are so important, bringing together people to talk about. And it's not one conversation, it's many conversations. People may resist at first and say, oh, I don't want to talk about death. That's just too morbid. Who wants to talk about death? But once you open that door just slightly and then come back to it, maybe two or three weeks later, again and again, so that you are clear about what you want and you understand what your friend or your neighbor or your child, you want them to understand what you want. A question from Neil Hawkins. Are there countries, are there cultures, Diane, better at this than we here in the USA? Oh my gosh. They are so far ahead of us. Switzerland, the Netherlands, Belgium. If you were of a mind to, you could apply even tonight to Switzerland for euthanasia and to Belgium and to the Netherlands. They will ask you to undergo a certain amount of questioning. They'll want to understand why. But if you are determined, they will carry out those wishes for you. Uh, I just, Again, you have to be affluent. You've got to be able to. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And who can do that? Yeah. Who can yeah. do that? Or even people having to move to one of the one of the you know states or the District of Columbia that offers this, that's something that people can't do. And then you must establish residence in one of those states. Okay. You must be there for 30 days at least in order to establish residence to find a doctor willing to work with you and not easy to find. More and more doctors are available in California and certainly in Oregon, very, very few here in Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. But in those countries I mentioned in Europe, mm -hmm. it's so different. It's an understanding that life belongs to the individual and I just watched a, a film about an elderly woman 
who did go to Switzerland, she took her whole family with her. Now, how many of us can afford to do that? But she did not want to die alone. She took her daughter, her granddaughter, mm. her son-in-law, and she was given an injection and put to sleep, put to death peacefully. And as you say, given one, because the rules, the laws here, it has to be self-administered. It's Absolutely. a foul-tasting liquid. And you and speaking of self-administered, uh, Dar has a tremendous question, um, and I'm going to read it verbatim. My husband died of ALS. At the end, all he could do is blink his eyes for yes or no. How can someone who has lost all function of his limbs and is being kept alive by a stomach tube self-administer a drug to end his life? Oregon is working on this, and this sounds particularly unpleasant to talk about, but I will tell you that the notion of those who have ALS is taken into account by virtue of allowing them to raise an elbow and begin the anal mm administration of the liquid. And, you know, for those with ALS, their muscles no longer allow them to swallow anything. It is so awful. And I so sympathize with your questioner. I'm it, so sorry about your husband. Yeah. And so the, as, as it's clear from your book and the film, this is an evolving movement. Um, and you go, you, you, I kind of got the sense from advocates, you take what you can get, you perhaps want to move in other directions to, for example, allow someone with ALS to be able to get that assistance. Well, and I asked the um, person who sits on the DC council, mm -hmm who introduced the law here in Washington, I said, what about those who have ALS? What about those who have um, Alzheimer's? And she said, it was a step further than we could go. This was as far as we could go now. Mm -hmm. And if they had tried to go any further, I'm sure the law would not have been passed. As things evolve and more and more and more people succumb to Alzheimer's and dementia, I have the feeling that our laws may change at some point. Are we seeing a great, I'm wondering even if COVID has part of how this might've impacted a greater awareness that yes, death does happen. Certainly what we've seen in this country and around the world over the last year, um, it's, it's in our faces and we know that there are loved ones dying alone on ventilators in COVID units. Um, death has been a part of 
the, it's, it's, it's like the program that you can't really close in your mind in this world of COVID. Um, and Mike asks, how can we re-engage, for example, House Bill 4461 that was proposed in March 2017 and get this kind of law passed? Mike says, I'm a stage four pancreatic cancer patient and fiercely would like a choice for the end of, of my young life. I'm 50. Oh, my. Well, the way the law got finally passed here in Washington, D.C., was because of the efforts of one individual who had cancer. She had ovarian cancer, and it was spreading throughout her body. And she and her wife began getting on the phones, trying to reach each and every legislator here in the district, trying to lobby in the end. She testified. I mean, she was near death. And she testified before this group of city councilors. And in the end, finally, finally, the District of Columbia became one of those places in the country that allows it. It is another reason for us to be talking about this because it's not going to happen unless we as individuals press for it. It's uncomfortable. It's something that legislators don't want to get anywhere near. And yet, one legislator in Maryland who had been totally opposed to medical aid in dying mm -hmm. saw his mother diagnosed with throat cancer and saw that she was in such distress, she swallowed a bottle of morphine and was taken to the hospital and her stomach pumped and of course brought back to life. And the doctor at the hospital said to him, if she does something like this again, don't bring her back to the hospital. Mm -hmm. She wants to die. Let her die in peace. And he said to me, that completely changed his thinking. He said, how can I, as a legislator, or even a son, mm -hmm. decide how someone else should live or die. And then he said, you know, we're all just one bad death away from supporting medical aid in dying. And I do believe that to be true. 
And I think what uh, what you're saying, Diane, answers questions like Lisa's, who said, how do we begin to bring medical aid and dying to Michigan so people don't have to move to California or Oregon? And it's a matter of speaking to your legislators. I think right now with COVID, it's probably a little hard to get attention because there's so many fires, so to speak, legislatively that are burning on that front burner. But you know, the fact that COVID is here mm -hmm. makes it all the more yeah. real makes it all the more important that we talk about this among ourselves, that death is one step away. Mm -hmm. And if we do not say what we want, and I'll tell you what I said, as soon as the COVID broke out, I called my doctor and I said, if I come down with COVID, I do not wish to go to a hospital. I do not want to be put on a ventilator. I do not want to be put on a respirator. Mm -hmm. I want to stay in my own home and either fight it through or simply die. And she said, well, we can give you a certain amount of oxygen at home. We can give you more at a hospital. But she said, I understand your feeling and I will make a note in your record that you do not wish to be brought to a hospital or to be put on a ventilator. So I think that this is the perfect time to be talking about this. Maybe write a letter to your legislator. You won't be able to talk in person, but to write a letter makes sense. Lori's wondering, uh, Diane, did your convictions gradually evolve or have you always felt this way? And if it was a process, what were the, what, what were the primary considerations that shaped your thinking? And I know you go into this in the book and in the documentary. My mother died when she was 49 and I was 19. My father died 11 months later. My mother had liver cancer, and she was in such horrific pain. She begged to die. She did not want to live anymore. My father died of a broken heart 11 months later. John Reams, mother and father, both died fairly early in our marriage. My father-in-law had diabetic retinopathy. He lived by himself and could not continue to do so. He took his own life. He was 72. My mother-in-law at 92 took her own life because of terrible pain. So death was around us and our children knew 
early on exactly how we felt about living out our lives, either disabled or in suffering, and knew that neither one of us wanted to do that. And they now know, because of that film that my grandson did, my children, my grandchildren know exactly what I want. The whole point of this book, of your book, When My Time Comes in the film, is to get us talking. And as we see in the film, one of the good settings for that is a death cafe. We referred to that, and we've got a few people going, hey, what is a death cafe? And I know I, uh, on my show stateside, we had someone who in the Ann Arbor area would, would get it. So I'll let you describe, Diane, what is a death cafe? And people can go to deathcafe.com because they're even being done on Zoom during this era of COVID. Absolutely. Churches have death cafes started by one or maybe a few people. Neighborhoods have death cafes. Groups of friends come together for death cafes, and it is simply a gathering with cookies and cake or with dinner or with drinks where people talk about what they want at the end of life. So the people closest to them know what it is they want. And it makes real sense to talk about it because it makes it less frightening. Death is part of life. And until we begin to understand that and appreciate that and stop trying to push it away and pretend it's not going to happen to us, it remains fearful, something we're terribly afraid of. And these cafes really, really help people. Comment from Caroline, uh, who says, sometimes it's not the patient, but a family member who has to make the decision to stop life continuing treatment. And that is so incredibly, you know, beyond anyone's understanding of how hard it is to do that. So, you know, you can say it's the patient's decision only, but there's a family member that has to somehow know it's the right thing to do and humane and moral and ethical and loving decision. But that's why you have to talk about what you want before you reach that point. Too many of us wait until that last moment. The family members gathered, well, what would mother want? What would dad want? That's not the time to be considering it. It is the conversations, plural, that must happen long before those last moments come. And a decision has to be made. Andrea Kramer asked a question that I'm really glad you did this, Andrea, because there's so many um, very um, caring and, and, and passionate physicians in Diane's book and film. So her question is, uh, she says, Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, 
invited doctors to step outside the traditional roles and help in the planning process for death in tandem with family and patient. In what way um, are we seeing doctors involved with the current movement to allow death with dignity? We're seeing younger doctors step up. The older doctors continue to believe that there is something godlike about the medical profession and that they should remain in control. But I was fortunate enough to sit in on a lecture by Dr. David Grube, who is the medical director of Compassion and Choices, who talked to 50 second-year medical students, they were so open and so understanding of the concept of medical aid in dying, whereas for doctors who've been in the profession for 30 or 40 years, the idea of doctor as God, doctor as the person who makes all the decisions for the patient, that doctor no longer exists in the patient's mind. Mm -hmm. You and I know that we as patients are now consumers of medicine, not only in terms of what we hear from our doctors, but what we read, what we learn, what we begin to understand from all the media, some of it off the, off the mark, but most of it pretty darn good, especially with people like Jane Brody writing in the New York Times about medicine. Um, we are taking more and more control of our own lives in medical terms. And these younger medical students and younger doctors understand that. I went to a doctor the other day and he asked me what I wanted and needed. Now, how different is that from the way things were 40, 50 years ago? Or less, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Uh, circling back to the Death Cafe, uh, Nancy Gallagher wanted to tell everybody who is watching and listening, she said, we've had a Death Cafe that has grown from Leelanau County to Grand Traverse to Benzie Counties for the past seven to eight years. And it's on Zoom and you can go to Death Cafe Grand Traverse on Facebook and keep these conversations going. But there's also deathcafe.com. You can plug that in, check that website and see kind of what is happening Again, making it with Zoom, it's probably, it's easy to be at home, but Absolutely. it is, but you know what? I love that setting of, you know, cutting a piece of cake, sitting at a table and, and, and discussing and, and people who perhaps have never met, but it somehow lends itself to opening up um, and, and, and sharing. The experiences yes. they've had in their own lives 
talking about what they're afraid of, talking about what they're looking forward mm -hmm. to. As my husband, on the first day that he had stopped eating, drinking, and taking medication, he said, I have begun the journey. And I said, sweetheart, are you sure this is what you want? And he said, absolutely. And he never wavered, mm. not once. And I, too, think of it as a journey. Mm -hmm. And who knows what lies ahead? None of us know. And how can we? But he had some belief that something lay ahead, and I share that belief. I recall uh, when I was uh, a TV reporter in the Detroit area, and my, I was doing a story where I did go to the home of a gentleman who was... Um, very much at the end of his terminal illness, but his oh. spirit, I can still see him. He was kind of propped up on, on uh, uh, he had pillows in the bed, but he said, it's the last great adventure. Well, exactly. I, I still, I can see how, I can't wait to see, it is the last great adventure. <laughs> and thinking about it that way mm -hmm. puts a whole different cast to it. Yeah. as opposed to the Grim Reaper. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad you said that. Judy uh, has a comment here. A family member in Ontario had a medically assisted death last June. He was able to have all his family and friends express how much his life meant to them and their love for him. And he could hear it rather than express it at a funeral when he was gone. And it was very, very special. I have to tell you that Canada has moved so far ahead of the United States. And they do now allow those who have Alzheimer's to make that request hmm. and to have medical aid in dying. Um, they are even moving toward euthanasia which so many countries in Europe do allow. So I don't know. It may be the recognition that too many of us are suffering for too long and that medical science has gotten ahead of humanity hmm. and that medical science is keeping us alive longer than we may really want to be kept alive. Anel has a comment here. She said, it is so ironic that the medical oath do no harm. That's the utmost premise of treatment is such a farce when there's more harm done to people by not granting their end of life wishes uh, or insisting on prolonging life, even if that person is suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I'm so interested that 
so many of the questions that you're receiving mm -hmm. seem to be so sympathetic toward the idea of medical aid in dying. Maybe that's the audience that we've drawn here this evening. Um, there are those who like the priest Yes. I spoke with Father Tui, yes. Mm -hmm. Father Tui, who believed that the Word of God tells us yes. that human life is sacred and must only go when God decides mm -hmm. that that time has come. And then there was another Roman Catholic doctor out in Oregon who was so firmly against mm -hmm. medical aid in dying who said, my role as a physician is to be there with the patient no matter the suffering to be right there with the patient. Well, I found myself wondering, well, you're not suffering the way that person is suffering, but that's his feeling, mm -hmm. and that's his raison d'etre for being a doctor, mm -hmm. and a Roman Catholic doctor at that. So he has uh, become part of a group pushing against Oregon's law. So it was very interesting to talk now, and, and you do such a skillful job of presenting the range of views in, in this book and in, in the film. Gail's question is a good one. Is there a difference, and if so, please explain, between medical aid and dying and euthanasia? There is a difference because medical aid in dying, at least in this country, demands that the individual self-administer the medication. Euthanasia can be carried out as it is in Europe, in parts of Europe, mm -hmm. by another doctor injecting a medication that ends your life. So it's passive. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. is allowing someone to end your life, whereas medical aid in dying demands that you are the actor. Mm -hmm. You are the person who is in control and takes your own life. And a number of the people who have put questions in are kind of asking, you know, what happens in, 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 a, in a death that, that is under this heading that, that is a self-administered medication with medical aid to dying? What kind of drugs are used and what happens? It used to be that there were very inexpensive drugs mm -hmm. that were used. And then the manufacturer decided to raise the cost of those drugs. And then before you know it, those drugs were costing in the thousands mm -hmm. of dollars. 
and finally taken off the market. Now they must be put together by a compound pharmacy. So it's a cocktail of various medications. It's a cocktail of various drugs, and I cannot tell you precisely what is in that concoction, mm -hmm. but I know it is lethal, mm -hmm. and but it does not take you out immediately. In some cases, it will you'll be gone in half an hour. In some cases, it may take six, seven hours for your breathing to slow and finally stop. Mm -hmm. Whereas with euthanasia, mm -hmm. you're gone. And I think uh, Pete and Carol comment, uh, the comment is not that I'm in favor of the death penalty, but how is it that life cannot always be successfully taken in that situation, but can in medically assisted death? It is an extraordinary question, which mm -hmm. I can <laughs> not answer in any form, any way. Yeah, yeah. I, I gathered, I, I could tell that there was frustration with the existing laws expressed by a couple of the physicians who have walked that journey with, with their patients toward the end, yes. that trying to administer this you know, and drinking down this nasty tasting liquid. And you, you even asked um, the patient, the, the lady that has the, the, had the breast cancer that had metastasized. And you said, I can't drink anything that tastes bad. And she said, I've been through seven years of chemotherapy. I can handle this. But <laughs> anything she yes, said, yes. I can take it. Um, Diane, do any of the laws allow for uh, minors under 18 to be able to have medically assisted no. of life? Okay. No. Okay. Also, we're getting people piping in with Death Cafe. There's Death Cafe Benzi on Facebook. You can check Zooming on Death, Dying, and Living Fully, a virtual Death Cafe. So it doesn't take a lot of digging on the internet to probably Isn't find that. that wonderful? Yeah, just, well, it's a place to, I'm sure, just in a safe setting, kind of figure out what you don't know and what you might want to ask and what you exactly. want to say to your family. Yeah. Exactly. Um, are both the euthanasia injection and drinking the cocktail, are they, are they painless? Um, I cannot tell you because I do not know, but I have watched on film someone receive mm -hmm. the injection through euthanasia and I have watched on film someone drink the concoction uh, created by the pharmacist and both seemed perfectly hmm. quiet, easy, and painless. There was no reaction whatsoever, no indication of any discomfort um, and certainly no regrets. We'll get a couple more questions in before we wrap up. Janet, 
I would love your thoughts, Diane, on your suggestions for maybe writing down your wishes besides talking to family. Do you recommend five wishes or other non-legal writings in addition to an advanced directive? It seems smart, she thinks, to write things and distribute them so there is no argument uh, among folks about what they heard. I think that's a great idea. I think that's a perfectly wonderful idea. At the same time, just to make sure that they understand that you're not writing this in a moment of anxiety or depression, I think it's, it's good to reinforce your wishes by talking to those who are closest to you because then there can be no doubt of your seriousness about what it is you want. Ken has uh, circles back to our conversation about um, people who are suffering from dementia. So yeah. here's Ken's question. And granted, neither of us are lawyers, so we'll see. But his question is, what about individuals who's, who, who express very clearly that they want medical aid in dying, as you have, Diane, and then when the time comes, they are suffering from dementia. Can their medical power of attorney make it happen? Nope. Okay. Nope. Not allowable. Okay. And that is why in the example I gave you about mm -hmm. the article in the New York Times magazine, mm -hmm. that husband and wife had to be so closely aligned and he had to honor her wishes by telling her when he knew that she was getting so close to the edge that she might not be able to carry out her own wishes. And that's why it is such a precarious thing to do. But you know, I pray that should that come to me, and I'm 84 years old, should it come to me that my children and my husband will honor my wishes by saying to me, Diane, I see this happening, I see this happening, I just want to let you know. And I know that I will begin to feel it as well. And I will make my own judgment. What are you hoping that people get from your book and from this film? What we've been talking about, that they will take from this film and from this book on which the film came first. The book is based on the film. And what I pray that people will take from both is the incentive to begin talking with their families and their friends about what it is they want at the end of life and how they would like to have their lives end. We asked everyone in the book mm -hmm. what they thought would be a good death. 
and even those who were against medical aid in dying had exactly the same answer as everybody else did. I want to die peacefully in my own bed, surrounded by family and friends, and by talking with your family and friends, you may be able to achieve that. Well, the the I'm so glad I had a chance to uh, to catch a look at the documentary uh, that uh, is directed by Joe Fab, and it is really it's tremendous, and it's it's something you don't want to miss. So tell us uh, when can people start seeing the film on PBS? Well, it is going to debut here in Washington D.C. on April the 13th at nine o'clock. And then it goes out all over the country to PBS stations. You'll have to check your local listings. Then it's going to go to PBS Plus, PBS World, ultimately to Amazon. Okay. So it's going to be out there. And it too is called When My Time Comes. Exactly. Well, it is. Um, it has been uh, really a, a thought-provoking and lovely, lovely evening with you, Diane, exploring something that is, as you say, we're all going to face it. We are all going to face it, whether we think or not. But uh, it, it, don't wait. Don't wait until the fire is turned on under under your, the pot's boiling. You really want to have the discussions. And in your, as you say, very clear in your book, it is not just one discussion. It's a process. And, and sharing sharing your wishes, figuring out what your wishes are. Exactly. Some of us exactly. have not got that far. I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to talk with you. And it has been back at you again, at, at just as great a time as we had in Ann Arbor in 2016. So it was wonderful to spend that this evening with you. And to all of you who joined us tonight, we want to thank you. You know, you know it goes without saying, I wish we were all together in Traverse City. And we certainly look forward to the day when that'll be happening and we'll be at the Opera House and Diane will be sitting next to me and we'll be talking. At least we can all see each other without wearing masks. So it's nice to actually see faces, even if it's on a Zoom screen. And by the way, I want to remind you, there are still many events left in the National Writers Series winter spring lineup for the year. So head to the website, nationalwritersseries.org. Get yourself si signed up. Diane, it has been wonderful spending time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you. That was Diane Rehm talking with Cynthia Canty. Diane's latest book is called When My Time Comes. Learn more about the National Writers Series and upcoming events at nationalwritersseries.org and listen to past programs at interlockenpublicradio.org. For Interlochen Public Radio, I'm Linnea Melcarrick.